Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. On August 1st, 2007, a family was found brutally beaten in their home. And 15 years later, this case is still cold. My name is Sophia Talley, and this is True Crime Innit. Jane Curia was a widow from Kenya who moved to Georgia with her two daughters and son. She was just looking for a better life. She was a hard worker and she absolutely adored her children. Her oldest daughter's name was Isabella and she was 19. Her next eldest name was Annabelle and she was 16 and she had an eight-year-old son named Jeremy. Isabella was going to school to be a pharmacist And Annabelle was a sophomore in high school. Annabelle loved kids. And so she was known to babysit during her spare time. The family was happy. They were very social. And they also were very active in their community. They were known members of their local church. And everyone just loved them. They are described to have loved to have fun. They were just a fun-loving bunch. They loved to cook together and just enjoy their company. According to Jane's immigration lawyer, Jane was currently seeking asylum because her and her daughters opposed the female genital mutilation that was happening in their home country of Kenya. They felt as if they would be unsafe moving back to Kenya. And so they were hoping to be able to live safely in the United States. But unfortunately, this asylum was denied. And Jane, at this time, was in the process of appealing. On August 1st, 2007, Mena, who is Jane's niece, was awoken with a start by her other aunt, Pauline. Pauline was extremely concerned because her son, Peter, also known as PK, had just arrived from Kenya and was staying with Jane and her family. And she was unable to get in contact with her son. And she was desperately trying to see her son because he had just arrived from Kenya and was staying with the family until she was able to go and see him. Pauline thought it was strange that Jane wasn't picking up phone calls because at this time it was 9.30 a.m. And so she would be already up, possibly making breakfast for her kids and nephew. So it was very unlike her to not pick up the phone, especially when she's caring for this little boy. Pauline's nephew, Owen Thonde, actually lived next door to Jane and he was actually sent the night before to go and check on them because even the night before they were not answering their phone. So Owen actually went up to the house and looked through their windows and he just 
didn't see anybody. He saw that the family car was still in the driveway. And so he just assumed that someone picked up Jane and, and the girls and the boys and they just took him out to dinner. So Owen went back to his home and told his aunt that night that, oh, like the house seems fine. Nothing seems to be in disarray. So, you know, they're probably just out having dinner with somebody. But the next morning, when the family still was not picking up their phone calls, everyone just began to worry. So Pauline and Mena drive all the way to Jane's house. And the whole time, Pauline is just in absolute panic mode. She is so concerned about her son and Jane. And she is actually quoted as saying, I don't know what's going on. It's so unlike her. You know, I have my child over there and I don't know. I haven't spoken to him, end quote. When the two get to the house, they decided to split up. Pauline was going to first knock on the front door while Mena was going to go through the back and see what was happening. So they were going to split up and see because we already know prior they weren't answering the door when Owen went to go check on them the night before. Even though they agreed on this, Pauline decides to follow Mena to the back of the house. And this house is a bi-level. And so you can access the second story so Pauline decides to follow Mena to the back of the house and they notice the back sliding door is actually unlocked. Mena goes in first and upon entering, she just sees an absolute massacre. She said all she just saw was blood and possibly a body face up, but she couldn't tell who it was. And as soon as she saw this, she turned to her aunt Pauline and she said, okay, you cannot go in. We cannot go in. Let's go back out and we have to call the cops. Pauline protests and it's like, what do you mean? You can't, I, I can't go in. My son's in there. And she forces her aunt to exit the house. They dial 911. Unfortunately, they don't know the exact street address of the house. So Mana has to go to the mailbox, pull out some mail and read their location from, you know, this flyer that she found in the mailbox. Police get there extremely quickly. They actually pull up in black unmarked vehicles and they enter the house and Mena sees an officer in the doorway of the house and he's holding up first two fingers and then he holds up three fingers and later she finds out that the two fingers signified how many survivors there were and the three fingers signified how many deceased there were in the house the two boys in the house jeremy and pk were alive but they are in critical condition because they had been unconscious for about 24 hours at this point. So both boys are rushed to the children's hospital. One is actually airlifted. I'm unsure which one it is, but they are rushed to the hospital. And as soon as they get to the hospital, police make sure that they are thoroughly protected because unfortunately, these boys had been beaten nearly to death. Everybody in the house was savagely beaten. Jane was in the kitchen. Isabella was near the front door entrance. And Annabelle was in her bedroom. And all three had succumbed to their injuries. First on the scene was Detective John Dawes. He actually works for the cold case unit. But at the time, he was helping out because this was such a major case in the area. Forensics discovered that the 
attacks took place sometime between midnight and 3am on July 31st. And because it happened so late at night slash early in the morning, there were absolutely no witnesses. And there was no signs of forced entry. Police believe that the perpetrator or perpetrators were let in and therefore they were most likely known to the family, so an acquaintance or even a family member. And evidence shows based upon where Jane was that she was entertaining this person or these people for quite a while before being attacked. The family was beaten what is believed to be a long metal object with a forked end. And it, it has to be heavy, possibly made out of stainless steel or lead. And though there was a lot of blood on the scene, they are unable to extract the murderer's blood from the victim's blood. And so police believe that the murderer's blood was on the scene and that they do have their blood, but they are unable to extract it because so much of blood collected from the scene is just... There's just too much of the victim's blood mixed in there that they cannot extract the murderer's DNA from it. Oddly enough, the next day, a blood-soaked towel was found about two miles away from the scene of the crime, and it was thrown into a ditch. But to this day, police is unable to match this DNA to anybody. Dawes found it interesting that there wasn't blood leading from one scene to another. So for example, there were five victims here, right? And they were all attacked in different parts of the house. So there wasn't blood trailing from one victim to another. It almost looked as if to Dawes that that either different people like dispersed in the house and picked a victim or the murderer was just got lucky or took off his shoes or something to prevent blood from dripping from one scene to another. However, Dawes doesn't think that the murderer is highly intelligent or anything. He believes that this murderer, who is most likely a male, was emotionally driven and he wasn't the smartest and it is believed that this person has narcissistic and sociopathic tendencies because this person was able to stay quiet for 15 years. And so police are very concerned that this person is still out there and has the ability to then repeat these crimes again. That day, family members gathered to grieve and just mourn the loss of their loved ones and John Dawes decided to be on the scene during this get together. So that way he can kind of get a vibe for all the family members because he fully believed that somebody who was close to the family, whether it was a family member or a family friend, someone who was close to the family was the perpetrator. A man just unprovokedly walks up to John Dawes and tells him that he needs to look into the Majiki tribe. And the Majiki tribe is known for committing violent assaults in Kenya. And Dawes just found this really odd that this random guy came up to him in Georgia and said, oh, this tribe in Kenya is responsible for this. Because he felt as if the accusation was just completely out of left field. And he also felt as if this person was trying to 
point him in the wrong direction. And so Dawes started looking into this man, and it turns out that he was a really, really good family friend. He had met Jane through church, and Annabelle, the 16-year-old daughter, actually used to babysit his two boys. And I'm pausing here because this is a little strange. As payment for babysitting his sons, he would then take Annabelle on these private dinners that no one else in the family was invited to. So he would then take Annabelle, who was 16, out on what seems to be a dinner date, which is so, so creepy because this guy is a grown man. He is married and he was also around the house a lot fixing it up because Jane was a was a widow. She was a single mother. And so, you know, they kind of saw this guy as someone in the community who was willing to lend them a hand around the house. What's also interesting about this man was that when police pulled phone records, they found that there were t- phone calls being made between the between Jane and him. And so for a whole month, they talked on the phone 10 times a day, totaling to over 300 phone calls through the month of July. And police found it highly suspect that those phone calls ended July 31st when the family was presumed to be murdered before anyone knew that anything has happened to them. So on July 31st, I don't know if you remember from the beginning of the story, Mena and her Aunt Pauline is desperately trying to reach this family. And it's just interesting on the day when everyone's calling them. And Mena pretty much says this later on that the one day where everyone's trying to call them, this man doesn't call, despite calling this this woman 10 times a day. So when police was trying to look into his alibi, they found that his alibi was absolutely horrible. He worked a day shift and his wife worked night shift. And unfortunately, his only alibi was that he was at home without any adult to account for him being there. So there is no proof that he was at home that night. And despite the fact that this man was married, family members have spotted Jane and him looking intimate in public and almost as if they were dating and This was surprising to the family because this man is married with kids and they haven't heard really anything to imply that they were dating from Jane. Family and the police also suspect because he was taking Annabelle out on these dinners, maybe he was interested in Annabelle more so than Jane. We're just unsure. We just find it freaking weird that he was taking a 16-year-old on dates. Now, this man actually did have a motive. He actually, a year before the murders, he had borrowed a large sum of money from Jane so that he can then send back to Kenya and purchase weed. Why? I why I don't know if he wanted to sell the weed. I We don't know why. But a year later, Jane is still looking for her money. And it is believed that she's a type of person that she would literally hold people accountable for their actions. And so it is believed that she may have been asking for her money at the time of her murder. Now, interestingly enough, this man's DNA did not match 
the DNA found on the blood-soaked towel that was found a day later in a ditch two miles from this scene of the crime. But this doesn't entirely rule him out because remember, police suspect that there may have been multiple murderers at this crime scene. Jane was said to have announced that she was going to be given $30,000 because she had started this new real estate business venture with some friends. But after her death, this money that was supposed to come in as her payment did. And so family found this weird because they never heard her talking about entering real estate. And that's quite a lot of money. And they were a little bit worried about where exactly this money was coming from. And allegedly there was there was a house being sold, but family thought that this whole thing just sounded very off and nefarious. Once the boys were well enough to talk about what happened to them, only PK got a glimpse of his attacker. So remember, PK is new to the US. He just got here. So he didn't recognize the man that attacked them. But the man was speaking a Kenyan language. And he was wearing an African like floral shirt, I'm assuming like a dashiki type of shirt. And he has just never seen this man before. And he did not pick up on any of this man's facial features, obviously, because this child was trying to survive in this horrible moment. And years later, PK was eating ugali, which is a cornmeal dish with spinach. And he looked at his mom, who was with him. And he says, I was eating this the day he was attacked. And he was just able to then reiterate, yes, I remember this man was wearing this African shirt. So PK's story just stays consistent his entire life. Jeremy, who was in his bed asleep at the time, has no recollection of of the person who did this to him. John Dawes, 15 years later, is still looking for the person or persons that did this. And the family is actually really grateful for his dedication to the case. Pauline states, nobody can really say how grateful we are. He has really been there and he always answered our phone calls and questions. And anytime we have a concern, he'll always have us go to his office. I'm always going to be forever grateful for him. I am. On the case's 10th year anniversary in 2017, he believes that what's preventing this case to be solved is that there is just so many moving parts of there was this man who was there, you know, possibly courting their daughter. And then there was this business venture going on with unknown people. And this whole thing where remember they were they were declined asylum from Kenya around this time so there's just so many moving parts in this case and there's so many what could be red herrings that they really need some more evidence to narrow down who the killer could be and so if you have any information about this case i will of course put the phone numbers in the show notes so that way if you have any information about this case you can then forward that information to the correct avenues my name is sophia tally and this is true crime in it
And now it's time for the knitter mission. So I am still just knitting away at this cardigan. And this is my first time knitting a cardigan in sport weight. So actually, I did knit one in sport weight years ago, but it wasn't quite this big. This thing is huge. So I have been knitting away at this cardigan for what feels like forever. And I'm finally at the point where because it's a I am working on a bottom up dropped sleeve cardigan. So I am finally at the point where I can join almost there where I could join the shoulder seams and then start working the sleeves. But then I have the button band to work. So I'm tired already. But that's essentially what I have been working on this whole time. Also, I have a test knit coming up. No, the test knit's live now. Y'all need to join my test knit. It is for the Tweety cardigan. I'm wearing it right now. If you can see, if you can't see, it is an easy color work sweater that uses seed stitch color work, which is so fun and so addicting to do. And it's such an easy way to work color work because for the most part, you're only working one color per row. And so it makes this color work look really cool and super easy. It's very similar to mosaic knitting, but it relies more on seed stitch. So I just find that super cool. And it's knitted in super bulky yarn. So the knit along says two knit along. The test says two weeks. If you've ever tested for me before, you know that I am not a stickler for time. I just put two weeks so that way we can like hold ourselves accountable for a time that may go over by a week or two, but that's okay. And I honestly do not care. But I just need I need some test knitters. This has been tech edited. It's ready to go. And it's a super quick knit. It says two weeks, but honestly, three is fine. And it's in super bulky and once you get past the yoke, which may take you like a day of knitting tops, not even like a day, but like maybe like a, a knitting session, you know what I mean? Like a movie or two. Once you're done that with the yoke, it is home free reverse stockinette. The sleeves are knit inside out. So that way you're not doing pearl stitches for the end of time. And I knitted this sweater a week before Rhinebeck. This is my Rhinebeck sweater. Okay. And I was literally ordering yarn days before I had to fly out to Rhinebeck and I was able to complete it maybe a couple of nights before. And it it honestly was a super quick, satisfying knit. I use Franca by Manos de Uruguay. And this is my first time using Manos de Uruguay yarn. And oh my gosh, I am absolutely obsessed. I usually find bulky merino to be quite bulky or super bulky merino to be quite itchy because the loft tends to be it tends to be very lofty with a lot of hair poking out you know what I mean so those pokey hairs tend to irritate my eczema but I found that the merino is just top notch in the franca but oh my gosh you are paying for that top notch so this is probably the first and last time I will be using franca like this sweater I don't want to know how much it costs I think it costs roughly like 160 and it's cropped so yikes but it's so warm and toasty it's exactly what I wanted I wanted a coat cardi if you're watching the video it kind of looks janky now because it has been vacuum sealed and packed to go to Rhinebeck and then I wore it to Rhinebeck and then I haven't blocked it since Rhinebeck in fact when I blocked it I only steamed the button band because I it was the night before Rhinebeck and I wore it 
wet on my way to Rhinebeck. So what I'm trying to say is this sweater needs to be blocked and ready to go. So that way it looks good in pictures. But oh my gosh. So if you want to join the test knit, I'm going to put that in the show notes and also in the Instagram post that connects with this episode because I need y'all to join. Okay. Join my test knit. Please join my test knit. Don't be shy. I am desperate. Please. Other than that, I'm really just been tied to these two cardigans and trying to get this trying to get these designs out. I have another design coming up that if you've seen me in person in the past few months, I've been wearing this purple sweater to every freaking yarn event and I haven't written the pattern yet. And I feel like people are going to start throwing rocks at me until I write it because everyone's been asking me what the pattern was. So that's also coming soon. It's on the docket. It's on the calendar. Unfortunately, the yarn is Stitch and Story, which is a beautiful yarn, but the Stitch and Story is going out of business, which I hate saying it because I I love Stitch and Story. For those who don't know, Stitch and Story is known for their yarn kits and for their just beautiful soft merino yarn that is so perfect for baby blankets and things like that. Well, they're going out of business. So when I usually create a pattern, I like the the pattern to be knitted in yarn that is available for purchase. So that way you guys can have the sim- uh, the same garment that I made if you desire to. So I have to then re-knit that sweater, possibly regrade it before I get it tech edited and before I get it tested. So bear with me. I hope to have a design out every month this year, get back on my monthly design thing that I usually do. So I am a busy lady. And also, guys, let me know in the comments if you were watching, if you like to see me knit through this whole podcast. I've been talking about trying to knit throughout the whole podcast forever. And it's a struggle for me because my setup. But I think I finally got it. Yes. The only thing is I kind of moved to the center, which I try to film askew like to the left or to the right so that way I could put pictures up and not obscure my face too much because that's a bit distracting, but can't have it all. So anyway, guys, I got to go and I will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.